As we begin this fall, we're in this series called Big Questions that is following the same themes uh, that the Alpha series follows, and obviously that's uh, intentionally. We are uh, wanting to just reflect together on some of the big questions of life that people ask, and last week we, uh, I shared some stories of just a group that I was with recently and, and having conversations, great conversations, about some of the, the big questions of life for sure. Uh, this week, we want to focus on, when it comes to faith, there's probably no bigger question than the question that we're focusing on today. And that's the question of who is Jesus? And I have to confess, it's a little intimidating even for me to just to think about, okay, how do I articulate in, in a few short minutes about who is Jesus? Now, thankfully, we have scripture that speaks all over the place of who uh, Jesus is, but it is the central question for us when it comes to issues of faith because it really fundamentally is the question that separates all the great world religions of just saying, who is Jesus? And it's one that we have to uh, come to grips with and understand on a variety of levels, in, in, even into our own story uh, of wrestling uh, this question of, of who is Jesus in our own lives. I, uh, I grew up, as most of you know, and many of you know my story. For those who are new, new, I'll share a bit of it. I grew up in a small town called Carrot River, Saskatchewan. It's on the way to nowhere. It's in the northeast part of this province, and the road kind of ends there and then detours and heads back. Um, but it's a town and a place that for me was a safe place of nurturing faith. Um, parents who loved the Lord and lived what I would call a quiet faith, but a very real faith, a faith that, that affected their lives, it affected their decisions, how they raised their children, how they made financial decisions, how they farmed, all those kinds of things. And also in a church that was very nurturing as well, that, again, I would say was more of a quiet faith, not a real bold out there kind of faith, but one that was very real. And so the seeds of faith and understanding who Jesus is were planted within me very early. And there's even a, a Mary Boschman was one of my teachers. She's part of our church now. She was one of my, my Sunday school teachers early on and one of those planting those seeds of faith for me. And so there was a context for me that I came to understand, or at least begin to understand, some of these questions uh, of my life about who Jesus is. And then in 1984, a number of things happened, and, and things really changed for me. I, I encountered Jesus in a whole new way. Because you see, as I'd been growing up, I sort of had this mindset that I thought, well, okay, I, I understand who Jesus is, and mentally I understood it. But I also thought, you know what, I'm having you know, kind of too much fun now, living my own life, doing my own thing. So one day maybe I will follow Jesus, but not right now. That was sort of my mindset. That'll be a later thing. And then I went to this camp in BC called Squia, and we went there. I went there and worked as canoe instructor and encountered these people who had a very real and tangible faith, and it changed me. And I would say it was, it was basically on, on three levels. It was, first of all, it was people meeting a group of people who loved me unconditionally and who lived the life of faith that was relevant to their own lives in very real ways and showed me the love of Jesus in ways I'd never experienced. Secondly, it was a, a time of my life of an emotional encounter with Jesus and encountering his Holy Spirit in ways that I had never experienced before. And so it was the Spirit of God breaking into my life in ways that were just new to me. And then thirdly, it was seeing Scripture come alive for the very first time. Of actually reading the Word of God and reading and just having a, a hunger and an appetite 
for the things in Scripture and reading and just having the Spirit of God open Scripture for me in ways that I had never again experienced before. And so for me, that summer of 1984 was a summer of what I would call, what we talk about around here, of transformation. And it was transformation that had seeds of that planted way back in my beginning, and and it's transformation that has continued and continues today in different ways. But it was a, a marker. It was this unmistakable place where God really got a hold of me, and I really encountered Jesus and came to understand who Jesus is in a very real way. And it changed me. It changed my motivations. It changed my direction in life. It changed the things I wanted to do. It changed my priorities. It changed the way I made decisions. It changed my language. It changed my lifestyle. It changed everything about me in many ways. Because Jesus suddenly became real to me. He wasn't just this figure in history that I had read about or sort of understood, but now I knew him in a completely different way. And there have been different markers since then where I would point to where those things have happened in different ways as well. There's also been many times where it feels silent and God seems distant and things are, things are relatively quiet. And you know about that, but, but the reality of encountering Jesus is so significant for us. That's my hope and prayer today, to even just give some indication of that today, that you would see again, or maybe for the first time, who Jesus is And I want to have you turn uh, to the book of John, John's Gospel, chapter 1. And that's our primary text that we're going to look at today. John chapter 1, verse 1 to 14, which are just some of the most powerful texts that point to who Jesus is. Now, I want to say at the outset that I understand that if you are somebody who maybe you're here for the first time, maybe you're somebody who's still a skeptic or wondering who is Jesus, that you may not place the authority in Scripture that other people do. And that's a fundamental question that we have to wrestle with. What authority do we give the Word of God, God's Word in Scripture? What authority do we give that in our lives? And I'll come back to that a little bit later. But as I see Scripture as as God's authoritative Word, and we look at Scripture to say, okay, what does Scripture say, and what do people in Scripture say of who Jesus is, there's probably few better places to go to than the Gospel of John, written by one of the apostles who was with Jesus, called the Beloved Apostle. And, And he was one who articulated these words and answered so many questions about who Jesus is. Let's just read through it. It says, In the beginning, the Word already existed, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light, he was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And he came into the very world that he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and they, even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the Word became human and made his home among us. And he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. You know, there is just so much in that text that speaks to this question of who who is Jesus. That Jesus uh, has the, the God characteristic of eternal existence. That Jesus exists before and outside of creation. 
There's even a repetition in here to make the point uh, again. He says, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then it repeats it. He existed in the beginning with God. He was there outside of creation, that Jesus was there. We see that John understands Jesus as being both a different person than God, because he says the Word was with God, but also the same as God. The Word was God. And it's this powerful statement of the mystery of the Trinity, of God the Father and God the Son here. Not speaking specifically about the Holy Spirit, but about Father and Son. And this mystery that we do not want to take away, but to embrace that God, that Jesus is separate in person from God, as he's saying here, but is God. John is saying that Jesus was integrally involved in creation. As God created everything through him, again, repeats for emphasis, nothing was created except through him. That life flows out of Jesus, that he is the source of life for all humanity. It says the word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. It says that Jesus is more powerful than darkness. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. We know that the enemy, Satan, is all about darkness. All about keeping things in the dark. And we know that nothing good grows in the dark. That things need to be brought into the light of Jesus. Even in our own lives, that is true. And if you've ever been in a cave or you've ever been down a mine shaft of a potash mine or something like that and you go into those places where the lights get turned off and there is a darkness that is unmistakable where you cannot see your hand immediately in front of your face and it is just pitch blackness. And it's into that that Jesus comes as light. And that's the kind of oppressive darkness that, and in John's Gospel, he's talking about the world and some of the darkness that's there, and Jesus shatters that. So we need to understand that these are really big answers to this big question of who is Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus is God incarnate, is a unique person from God. Jesus created all things. Jesus is the source of life. Jesus is not overcome by darkness. Yeah, I don't really think we understand truly how big these are. Especially if you've grown up in the church, sometimes we read those things and we sort of gloss over them again, but to understand and to reflect on them again about the implications of what these words in this text means. And if you are new to faith or still wondering about this, these are questions to, to ras- wrestle with and to grapple with. And there's probably no better place to go than the Gospel of John to understand that question of who is Jesus, even as we'll see in the few verses that we look at today. And then the text goes on, and the writer John changes the subject a bit, and he talks about another John, which is John the Baptist, or we'll call him the baptizer just to differentiate, because he is a different John that he is referring to here. But he says, God sent, John, sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself, the baptizer, was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And so we see that the baptizer's ministry was to proclaim the one who was coming. He was a witness to the one who was coming. He was foretelling the one who was coming. But it's, he was not Jesus. Because you see, the baptizer had become quite famous. He was one who articulated and, and, and called out in the wilderness and pointed people to the Messiah. And he was this man with a bold faith, a radical faith that people were following. And he had this following of people who came after him. And some were even thinking, maybe he's the Messiah. 
But the baptizer makes it really, really clear that he is not the Messiah. In fact, if you continue in reading in the first John, he says, I'm not even worthy of untying his sandals. He says, I am needing to become less so that Jesus may become greater. And so the baptizer is also pointing to Jesus and saying, this is the Messiah. This is God himself. And he makes that unmistakably clear. And then in verse 10 to 13, it says that Jesus came into this very world that he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people even, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Not reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan. In other words, it's not our doing, but it's a plan that comes from God and a birth that comes from God. So even though Jesus created this world and he was present now in this world, the world didn't recognize him. It says that Peter, Eugene Peterson says he, Jesus pitched his tent came right among the chosen people of God, of Israel, and these chosen people also did not accept him or see him or understand him. And then it makes this incredible claim. And it says that the good news is, is that, all who do, that all who do believe, all who do accept and receive him become actual heirs of God himself. This is a gift from God. This is the gospel. You know, the idea of belief in John's gospel, is much more than simply agreement. It's much more than just simple this, simply this mental assent or this acknowledgement in your mind of something being true. Belief is more of a whole person following as you read through John's gospel. It's a kind of action and a kind of faith that has legs. In other words, you give your life to it. You change your orientation of how you think and how you make decisions and how you're going to go towards that direction. And so belief and captures far more than just this mental head knowledge. It's way, way more than that. It's this ongoing decision. It's, it's not just a one-time thing, but this daily choice for your whole life to follow Jesus because of belief, of following. And then in verse 14, this incredible verse, it says, So the Word became human and made His home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. I mean, what a greater, what greater way for God to reveal himself, this living God who's created all things, than to become one of us in the flesh, what's called the incarnation. And I was thinking of analogies of that, and I couldn't come up with any good analogies, but other than to think of just a few weeks ago, I was stung by a couple of hornets, and they bugged me, and I killed them all. But before that, I was thinking, if I wanted to know what a hornet thinks like, like who am I going to go give pain to today, what would I do? I'd become a hornet. And I would go into their hive, and I would become like them, and be able to speak their language, and inflict pain like they do, and so on and so forth. Bad analogy, maybe. The way my brain works. But but, but what better way for something who is so big and so large and so unimaginable to come and become known to those that have been created than to become one of them? And that's what God did through Jesus. That's the incarnation. That's the story of the gospel. The power of presence. Again, in the message, Eugene Peterson says he moved into the neighborhood. 
He showed up day after day. I was thinking of uh, a small child. When a small child is fearful and scared, what's the best thing that can happen? Well, when a parent comes in and holds them and is just present. And oftentimes you don't have to say any words or articulate anything, just be there. And so here is God who loved us so much that he came to dwell among us. He became one of us in Jesus. What an incredible story. And John says that, that he is a witness to this. He says, we have seen the glory of Jesus. We've seen his glory. We've seen the glory of the Father's one and only Son. And you have to understand that in that context, in that culture, what these people would understood is that that kind of glory is reserved for God and God alone. And so by stating this, he's stating that Jesus is worthy of the glory of the Lord, that he is God. So it begs the question for us again, who is Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? Now again, I want to come back just for a minute, and we could take all kinds of time here, but we don't have time for that, about the authority of Scripture. How do we understand and, and to understand that this is true and trust that this is true. What authority does Scripture have in our lives is a very fair question. And as we interact with people in our society who do not place authority in Scripture, then we often find ourselves talking past people because it's a very different basis of authority. So it's fair to ask that question, well, what what do we give uh, Scripture in terms of that trust and that authority? And you could spend days and hours studying this and articulating, articulating this, but let me just say a few things, is that it can, it can hold up under the rigor of our examination. There are all kinds of tests that you can put at it. There's historical evidence. There is uh, secular historians who have written about Jesus, that people have gone back and seen the history books that give account of this man named Jesus who did amazing works. There is the New Testament which speaks concisely and, and uh, so overwhelmingly about who Jesus is, and it holds up to the science of textual criticism. As scientists and researchers look at it and say, okay, what evidence do we have that this is true, that this was accurate, and that this is written in a way that we can trust and understand? And textual criticism essentially looks at writings and says, how many manuscripts are there, how many copies are there, and how close are they in terms of when they were discovered to when they were written? And there are many historical documents that are, that are trusted by scholars all over the world that have hundreds and hundreds of years gap between when they were written and when they were discovered with only a few copies in hand. And yet if you do the research and you look at the New Testament and the copies of the New Testament, there are thousands and thousands of copies of that even within decades of when they were written. And so even the most... Uh, critical secular scholars will say the historical evidence in terms of the textual criticism for the New Testament is quite overwhelming. And so I want to say that to say that we can trust this document that comes to us through the course of history with so much evidence. And then I think of, okay, what about the prophecies? What about the prophecies of Jesus? I mean, no one else in all of history had a whole collection of books written about them before they were even born. Biblical scholars, they state that there was, about over, there was over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. 300 prophecies from the Old Testament that as Jesus came in and we go through the New Testament that he fulfilled them. And 29 on one particular day, actually. And so, I mean, you could say, well, maybe Jesus, when he was born and he came 
into this world. Maybe he just sort of picked up an Old Testament somewhere and said, okay, I better start fulfilling these prophecies. Okay, start making a list and checking them off. You know, okay, got to do that, did that, did that. But then there's some that would be a little bit challenging. Oh, I was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. How do I go back and change that? Okay, well, he was. Or about the timing and the way of his execution and his death. Those things that he has no control over. And yet, one after another, after another, after another, hundreds of prophecies fulfilled in the New Testament by Jesus. All of these written so many years before he was ever even born. I mean, you can go on and on and put all kinds of scrutiny to this. And many of you know uh, Lee Strobel, who wrote the book, The Case for Christ and many others. And he was a, an atheist investigative journalist who, who did not believe in this text, who did not believe this story. So he took all of his expertise and all of his training of investigative journalism and he went after the story. And through that, became a believer in Jesus because he says there's overwhelming evidence for it. And you can read his book if you're wired that way. It's a fascinating read. John's gospel is filled with this truth of who Jesus is. Again, I would just say if you are a a, a skeptic or somebody wondering, how do I answer this question? There is no better place to start than to spend a month in John's gospel and understanding and reading and rereading and reflecting on the words of this text as he teaches about who Jesus is. You look at Philippians chapter 2 and this beautiful story in in verse 5 to 11. We don't have time to go through that today, but it speaks about the very nature of God again. Then there's the question of what did Jesus say about himself? Well, even just looking at a few verses in John's gospel, and we could spend a lot of time on verses throughout all of, of the New Testament, in the, in the Gospels. But let's just look at a few in John's Gospel. What did Jesus say about himself? That's another test that we would bring to it. John chapter 14, verse 6, our text from last week, he made it unmistakably clear. Jesus says, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Pretty clear. In John chapter 4, verse 10, Jesus is giving a reply to a question. He says, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. In other words, I give a water that you will not thirst again. In John 5, 39, he says, you search, search the scriptures because you think they give you, they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. In other words, it's not about the scriptures, it's about who they point to. And he says they point to me. It's a pretty bold statement, if he is not God. John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus replies, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again. John chapter 8, verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, speaking about himself, he says, you are truly free. In other words, there's forgiveness of sins and freedom. And then, just in case there's still doubt, John 10, 30, he says, the Father and I are one. John 14, 9. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And that's just the start. That's just a real quick look at a few verses from John's Gospel You cannot say that Jesus said anything other than his own declaration of being God himself. I mean, over and over again, he says that, he articulates that as you look through the Gospels, as you look through all the evidence, it's it's clear that Jesus was not ambiguous. He He did not have an identity crisis. He understood who he was. And given that, as many authors and commentators have commented, there really are only three possibilities that come out of that. Either it was not true, And Jesus knew perfectly well that it was not true, in which case he was a complete fraud. That's one option. Or else it was not true, and he just simply didn't realize it was not true. In other words, he was 
kind of insane or, um, I mean, he was just deluded in some way. Or thirdly, really the only other option is, is that it was true. Last week, after my message, I had someone who said to me that I, I did the, the preaching trifecta, he called it. Quoting C.S. Lewis, Andy Stanley, and you too. I didn't realize that was a thing, but apparently it is. But at the risk of something, let me quote C.S. Lewis one more time in regards to this. C.S. Lewis speaks to this as well, and he says it so profoundly. A man who was merely a man and said that sort of, the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be insane or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else insane or something worse. But let's not come up with the patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. And he did not intend to. I think a great quote that reminds us of the implications of what we're reading here. You know, there are so many ways that we can approach this question. And I've just approached it in a couple of ways here today. There's just so many ways that we can come at it. But we have to wrestle with this question of, Who is Jesus? Because when it comes to faith, all the other questions hang off of this. All the other questions spill out of this fundamental question that we have to ask about who Jesus is. We've been talking in the last year about our discipleship steps and just trying to understand these different actions and steps that can help us in discipleship, of being discipled and discipling others. And the second one that we talk about is to experience and to model Jesus' love. That if we're going to be disciples and disciple others, we have to experience and we also have to model that love of Jesus to other people. That it has to have a truth encounter. There has to be something that impacts us, that that we have a relationship with Jesus that changes us, that we see who he truly is. It's not just this head knowledge. You know, I was thinking about my marriage with Lisa. For 27 years, we've been married. And I think she would tell you that most of that time has been great. At least I hope she would. But imagine if before I ever met her that I went into a bookstore and I found this book entitled Lisa Siemens, her maiden name. Extraordinary Woman. And I thought, that's an interesting book. I'm going to read that book. So I open it up. Chapter 1 has all these cute baby pictures with her little dark hair. And it's so cute and it's amazing. You know, and then there's chapter 2. And it's kind of the ugly years and pictures, you know. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. We all have them somewhere in childhood. Okay. Chapter 3 is... This beautiful young woman and pictures of this beautiful one, man, she's amazing. And then chapter four is on her tenacious spirit and her great personality. And oh, she's incredible. And then chapter five is on her potential to be a great long-suffering wife when she's ever married to a pastor. And I might read that and I might go, wow, what an amazing book, an amazing woman that this would be. I'd like to meet her someday. But that's right there, that's head knowledge, right? But then after 27 years of marriage, and having four kids together, and going through the highs and lows of life and all that you experience, I can tell you she's an amazing woman because of experience. Because it's different than head knowledge. And so the same is true when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. Is it just this head knowledge that we read about, that we understand in some intellectual way, or have we experienced the living God? Have we experienced the love of Christ? in one way or another. 
I received an email just this week uh, from Hannah, our daughter who's out at Bible school. She's out there together with Jody, and she sent this incredible email, and I, I'll just share one line from it. But I, I shared my testimony when I was like in 1984, back when I was about Hannah's age, maybe a year or two older, and encountering Jesus. And, and so Hannah's had this amazing time at Bible school, and it's like these seeds of faith and all these things that she's learned as a child growing up, even in this church, and all of a sudden it's coming alive for her. And just the excitement of encountering Jesus for the first time in her own personal, real way. She ends with this line. And she says, when I say I love God now, it's in my heart now too, not just in my head. This is how Jesus changes us. I'm with that crying baby back there. (laughs) When Bill McFarland um, gave his life to Jesus, it changed him. And many of you had uh, the opportunity to interact with him as we did and talk to him, and, and just the peace and the confidence of what it means to know Jesus. Amazing. It changes how we live, and it changes how we die. That's who Jesus is. Worship team, please come up and get me off of here. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the truth and the reality of the gospel. Thank you for the overwhelming evidence of who you are. And help us not to just believe it because maybe we've been taught since a young age but we've never encountered you personally. God, would you change our hearts and our lives and would you continue to transform us by your love and your grace and your mercy. We thank you and we praise you, Jesus. Amen.